Welcome to our podcast series, Talking with Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading. Welcome to season two of the Talking with Traders podcast series with me, Garth McKenzie. In this season, I'll be interviewing various successful traders and investors in my network and asking them pertinent questions about their career in the financial markets. I'll also be discussing how they've dealt with the recent surge in market volatility following the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic and how they are viewing the future as we all adjust to a new way of working. We'll also be talking about market themes that are likely to gain traction in a post-COVID-19 world. Joining me on this podcast is Dr. Adrian Seville of Canon Asset Managers. Uh, Adrian and I first met back in about 2001, I think it was, Adrian. I was at Deal Smith Securities and upstairs in our building was SA Stockbrokers. And you sh- you rented a small little office, I think it was a, like a three meters by three meters office in the corner of the dealing room at SA Stockbrokers where you started out as uh, Canon Asset Managers. And I remember at that time you used to fly up and down to Durban every week once or twice uh, to go and lecture at the, the University of Natal. So we go back a, a long time and we've gradually kept in contact over the years. So it's wonderful to chat to you again and welcome to the podcast. Brilliant to be with you, Garth. It's amazing you know, what can happen over the course of 20 years. But, uh, you know, they say life uh, sort of can travel full circle. So here I am speaking to you again from my little three by three. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm in my little three by three and I'm in the UK this time. So, uh, but technology has allowed us to do this, which is wonderful. Brilliant. Yeah. Adrian, if we go back to the right to the beginning of your career, um, I'd love to find out what got you involved in the stock market and where your interest was first spawned and how your career progressed from there. Garth, I, you know, I wouldn't say uh, my interest in investing started uh, in a work environment or as a career. In fact, my interest in investing started even before I knew you know, you, you could do this as a job. <laughs> And it was all the way back in my uh, high school years where I was introduced to uh, the market by uh, an accounting teacher. um, uh, And our project was to build fictitious portfolios. That was given, you know, as a class assignment. And I must have been 13 or 14 at the time. And I became absolutely fascinated uh, by this living, breathing, moving animal that changed its mind uh, each day about the value of a currency, a commodity, uh, or a company. And that uh, project uh, developed into a, a fully-fledged fascination with, uh, with capital markets and economies that uh, I think I could now sort of safely venture is a, is a 40-year-old uh, uh, a hobby, if I add you know, my uh, 13 years, um, uh, uh, the four decades brings me to, to early 50s. Mm, yeah, it's amazing. So many of the, the guys that I have interviewed on these podcasts have some sort of a similar story to tell where they were, uh, they became interested at school in some way or another through a stock exchange challenge or through a parent that was in, interested or something like that. And it's amazing yeah. once that bug has bitten, it just never, ever seems to leave you. 
And yeah, you know, I would add in my my, my family circumstance also in that my my father uh, in particular sort of fed this uh, market interest because of his uh, business interests. He ran uh, a JSE listed company. Um, uh, you know, he would travel uh, internationally and come back from you know fascinating places as wide and varied as uh, uh, Japan and Brazil. Um, uh, my favorite uh, sort of bring home treat was when he would arrive home with the business day uh, tucked under his arm and I would you know, page through it uh, trying to gather you know, evidence and arguments and stories. And my mom also had uh, a business interest which started as a, uh, I think the word is, uh, as, is a hustle or a gig uh, and turned out to be a fully fledged business that she went on to sell. So um, you know, I had this uh, family environment also that fed my my interest and intrigue. Yeah, that's fascinating. That, and I mean, I'm sure you've read the book Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, and he talks about Indeed. how how your you know your family circumstances can set you up for success. So it certainly sounds like you were teed up nicely for a for a very successful career. But now, if we Take it a step further. After high school, you've been uh, looking at markets. You've been playing the markets fictitiously since you were 13 or 14 years old. Mm. You ultimately ended up becoming a professional in this business. What did you do thereafter? I mean, you're a, you've got a PhD in economics, um, so obviously you've, you've studied a lot. And looking at your bio, I see that you cum laude to all of your studies. So very clever guy. Um, but what was what? How did your career sort of evolve from the beginning of your professional career? So there's, I mean, there's a little bit of colour uh, in that story also, I suppose. Um, in that uh, I was politically active, um, and uh, that made uh, that obliged me uh, to go to uh, university. Uh, the alternatives in South Africa were leave the country uh, uh, or go to jail. Um, uh, or, or go to the military, um, and I, I went uh, into university uh, in the second half of the 1980s and started with, uh, hold your breath, um, a, a commerce degree which I flipped to an arts degree, um, and that was to my father's absolute horror uh, <laughs> that I abandoned <laughs> accounting and instead went and did psychology, sociology, economic history, and I mean, with the benefit of hindsight, I'm going to argue uh, to you uh, and will still argue with my dad that it was probably one of the most valuable uh, tips or tilts, or should we use the word pivot, <laughs> uh, that, uh, that I did because, I mean, my experience over the 25 years of managing money now has been that you can do the numbers, you know, almost anyone can do the numbers. Can you do the behavior and the psychology? And then what's the context? So my early degree or my, my, my initial degree, my bachelor's degree was an arts degree. Um, and in, uh, in that I did law and economics as my majors. Uh, uh, and it was economics that turned into my absolute love. And then I did uh, an honors uh, and master's degree um, uh, in economics. And I took a very small uh, break to do a bit of um, uh, uh, sort of uh, feet finding um, and then returned to university after a one-year uh, work break 
to do uh, to do a doctorate. And while I was finishing my doctorate, so for all intents and purposes, I would argue I did my academic career in a straight line, bachelor's, honors, master's, doctorate. Um, and while I was f- progressing through my doctorate, uh, I s- confided in a, in a close friend and I said to him, you know, my anxiety is you guys are getting jobs and establishing uh, work experience. Uh, I've got qualifications on my CV, but, uh, uh, you know, I'm not sure that I'm employable. And he said, but you've got some really valuable skills. You know, we're starting for the first time in our lives to actually have incomes and we might have uh, something called disposable income. I'm not sure he called it that. Um, but, you know, you, you know how markets work and you understand investing. Why don't we uh, form a club? And that was actually the origins of the business where in 1994, uh, we put together an investment club. Um, and that investment club met once a month, uh, 12 subscribers initially. And uh, uh, we uh, started to build a, a pool of capital. I was responsible for managing the money. And three years later, we had uh, a, a sufficient uh, pool of capital to actually justify uh, licensing the company. Actually, it wasn't. It wasn't the pool of capital. It was the number of people interested in the partnership that wow. justified the licensing. Mm-hmm. And, and out of that, uh, a, a company called Bay Hill uh, Capital Advisors was born. Um, Bay Hill uh, then uh, iterated to become Canon Asset Managers. So Bay Hill is the original name of the company, and it was a very, very clever name mm-hmm. because I was based in Durban. And uh, at the time, the Hill was the university, if anyone knows uh, Durban as a city, uh, the old uh, campus of Howard College is up on the hill, and it overlooks the CBD, uh, which is in the bay. And so my my first business partner, Craig Simpkins, uh, very cleverly said, suggested this uh, extraordinary name, Bay Hill Capital Advisors, and we were off to dominate the world. <laughs> what a fascinating <laughs> story. And I mean, of those 12 guys that you started out with in an investment club, are, are they all still involved? Are they still all investors in some form, or have they peeled away over the years? You know, I mean, that is such a cool question, which uh, if the answer was awkward, I'd need to find a way to dodge it or duck it. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm delighted to tell you that uh, most of them uh, are, still, are still invested with me in some shape or form. Um, there's a tiny bit of double counting in that uh, one of those 12 is me and another one is my brother. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, maybe they do or don't count. Um, but uh, 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 of, the, of those 12, most are still my clients in some shape or form. And in fact, you know, some of them uh, as individuals and clients have extraordinary stories to, to tell where, uh, and obviously I can't disclose any identities, but uh, people who've done the 20 year yards. So we, you know, we're rewinding to 1998. Uh, people who've done the 20, 21 year, year yards uh, of compounding have turned, you know, relatively modest monthly allocations into quite substantial capital piles. Mm, I'm sure that's right. I mean, you've gone through a couple of bull markets during that time and if yeah. you've picked a few of the right stocks and as you say, compounded, reinvested your dividends, it becomes an incredibly powerful force over time. 
but that yeah. kind of leads me on to the next question for you, Adrian. And that is really, what is your your primary investing strategy or trading strategy? And I think it's probably not fair to to say trading because as I understand that you're you very much fit into the investment camp. But what would you mm, sort mm. of if I if you had to sum it up very briefly, what is your primary strategy of how you look after money? My initial uh, experience and exposure was really with um, asset allocation, and it was uh, so I would describe myself initially fundamentally as an asset allocator if you get asset allocation wrong it doesn't matter how brilliant you are uh, with your underlying strategy you're in the wrong asset class um, you know it's like owning uh, the best company in Venezuela uh, it will be a disaster yeah. so um, I would describe myself first uh, and I think this speaks to my roots as an economist uh, that I'm fundamentally interested in uh, strategic and then tactical asset allocation. Um, once you've got that right, you know, then I think that there's all types of things that you can do. Uh, the most powerful asset class, the most important asset class to me is equities. And uh, if you give me a patient enough investor with a long enough horizon, uh, I think uh, you want to go and buy unloved stuff. And you can call this contrarian, you can call it value, not distressed investing. I think that that's a very particular uh, type of investor and requires a very specific skill. But, you know, finding unloved, ignored, overlooked, under-researched assets, to me, that is the most uh, fascinating place uh, to work. But you need uh, a lot of patience. You need a stomach to tolerate the volatility. Uh, and you need a long uh, investment horizon. But I would describe those as sort of my two sort of core uh, principles, asset allocation first, and then the ability to work with uh, bottom-up valuation. Okay. And that, I guess, very much talks to your super dogs portfolio, which is something that's, yeah, know, it's yeah. a name that's become well-known and synonymous with your firm. And um, and, and that's, a, if, that's a minimum investment of 100,000 Rand, if I'm not right, wrong, that people can yeah. invest in if they want to follow that strategy of yours. Yeah, you know, so Superdogs actually started as a, a back of the envelope exercise. Uh, now I'm old fashioned, envelopes no longer exist, right? Um, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're old enough together. Yeah. Um, and uh, in mid 1990s, just before I started the company, uh, I, you know, set out with this um, uh, exercise to my, my wondering was what would happen if I bought. Uh, good companies, uh, i.e. Uh, they are profitable, dividend-paying with decent balance sheets. That was my definition of good at the time, and held them um, uh, and, you know, let them work as a, as a portfolio. And that, um, that project was actually uh, uh, initiated by a conversation with Paul von Rendsburg, um, who uh, has a, a well-known reputation in, in the investment industry. And Paul and I were... Uh, colleagues at the time, he was a professor in finance, I was a professor in economics, and he said to me, you know, have a look at this, uh, and it was some really interesting research. That led to the, um, uh, the formation of this fictitious portfolio, and after a couple of years of the fictitious portfolio, I went and I built the real portfolio, and that was the portfolio that uh, is the powerful compound that I'm describing uh, today that's run on for 
just over 20 years, packing down a compound uh, 20-odd percent per annum over, over the 20 years. Phenomenal. And that becomes massive over time if you can continue, continually compound at that rate. Yeah, well, I mean, if you take the rule of 72 and divide it by 20, you get a doubling of your money every three and a half years. Not yeah. uh, three, three and a half in and out, but in the fullness of time, it gets you there. It gets you very far. I mean, if you're a youngster listening to this podcast, just you know, rewind and listen to those few sentences again and know that if you can you know, use time to your advantage, time is your greatest asset in, in the investment yeah. world. Use it wisely and, and remember to keep your eyes set on the long-term horizon. You can make a hell of a lot of money if you, if you compound successfully over the years. But Adrian, now... Um, Obviously, we've all got a story, all of us that have been in the market for a couple of decades, and no doubt you've got some stories as well. And something I've been asking all of the interviewees on this podcast series is about their their best and worst investments. So um, maybe let's start with the worst. What, what stands out in your history as being one of the worst investments or trades that you've ever done? You're listening to Talking With Traders, a podcast series brought to you by IG, a world-leading online trading and investment provider. If you haven't checked out the IG online trading platform, please do so and visit IG.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast series on your favorite podcast app or website by clicking on the subscribe button and you'll be notified weekly as we release new episodes. Garth, I could give you in a, quite a few uh uh, companies or examples where uh, I've experienced permanent destruction of capital. And to me, that's the single risk that you want to avoid. You know, if it's, if it's one name in a portfolio and it's a 30 stock portfolio, you've just blown up 3% of the portfolio. You can recover from that. Um, uh, but to me, investing is all about uh, managing risk. It starts with risk management. And so I could, you know, give you a, I don't want to use the word pepper you with examples. I think that <laughs> uh, that would be um, uh, not the best advert for my skill or capability, but I can certainly give you examples of businesses uh, that have blown up um, uh, in our hands. The most recent uh, example I which I can share with you is, uh, is group five mm. where, uh, you know, our valuation of the business was, uh, it, it's really made up of a couple of parts, a building, uh, engineering, construction component, uh, a manufacturing component, and then a concessions business, which owns uh, toll concessions in, in Europe, uh, a fantastic uh, annuity business. Yeah. Well, with the benefit of hindsight, it wasn't a fantastic annuity business because it didn't have the ability to uh, uh, protect against the disastrous mistakes that were made in uh, silo one and silo two, the uh, construction and manufacturing businesses. And so we've seen uh, a 20 rand share price collapse to zero. Uh, the business is worth nothing. So that's my most recent mistake. Um, you know, I could share with you in 25 years of investing uh, a number of other um, uh, uh, experiences that uh, have turned into uh, portfolio setbacks. Um, you know, I'm, I'm pleased, uh, you know, to tell you in pointing to, you know, that type of example, that it's always a portfolio mistake uh, and you can recover from those portfolio mistakes. 
what you can never recover from is if you bet the farm uh, on that single business. Um, And that's when, you know, risk management goes out the window. Uh, Not so much mistake, but massive frustration is when you realize with the benefit of hindsight that that the horse has bolted. And in, I can think of well two examples that I, I repeat uh, often enough that I guess they count as scarring. Uh, the one was very early on in my investment career when, when I bought into a gold mine called Deal Crawl, okay. um, no longer listed. And Deal Crawl, I bought in a two rand. Uh, it was late 1980s, and so I wasn't managing other people's money; it was my money. Um, and it was, uh, you know, early earnings uh, from my uh, spectacular career as a mobile disco uh, um, jockey. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I put some money into deal crawl at two rand a share. Uh, this was gold price boom time. And the share price galloped uh, up to 24 rand at which point I thought I was the most extraordinary investor of all time, and it uh, quickly tanked back to two. Uh, so my 224.2 is, uh, is a reminder of the importance of timing after time in the market. And then not very recently, but more recently, a global financial crisis. We were invested in a copper business uh, called Metarex. Yes. Uh, and Metarex went from, there must be something poetic about the two. Uh, We had invested in Metarex for our clients this time at two rand a share. Uh, Commodities markets boom and Metarex uh, scaled all the way up to 50 rand a share. Global financial crisis struck and the share price fell all the way back to two. Um, And uh, we watched, uh, we were thrilled on the way up and we watched on the way down. It was a massive mistake uh, for our clients. Yeah. Huge mistake. Look, I think there's many stories like that on the JSE where, you know, even, and those are maybe you can call them somewhat speculative stocks, but I mean, even perceived blue chip stocks, we've seen some very big disasters like that. And if I look look at things like, it's not as bad, but something like an Aspen or a, or a Woolworths, you know, those are also quality stocks that have seen their share prices, you know, mm. drop by, by 80% from their highs at times. And I've likewise also, you know, worn those scars and thought to myself, how to, how to try and avoid that in future. And from my perspective, I, I look at, well, certainly a decision I've made now is, is to actually look at some, you have to overlay some sort of a technical indicator with your long-term fundamental th- thinking. So I've found something like a, you know, a 50-week moving average, as an example. As long as your stock is trading above that or staying, the moving average is still pointing up, you can be long of the stock. But getting out when that thing turns down has saved you from a lot of disasters, I've found. Um, do you apply any technical thinking to your to your investment strategy, or, or is it all fundamentals only? Technical in the sense that, um, you know, something like momentum, uh, which I think is a very powerful indicator, um, uh, provides uh, guidance, uh, or, um, well, I've used the, the term indicators, I think it is exactly that. I think it's a, it's a useful indicator. We don't have uh, rules in our process that if something, you know, crosses above or falls below uh, 200 or something day moving average, we don't have those um those disciplines uh, in our process. 
we've got other uh, other disciplines that I think you know are worth mentioning in passing. The one is uh, uh, if you don't have these scars, um, then I, you know I don't think well. If you want to be if you want to be effective in your decision making, I think these scars and mistakes are really, really helpful. Yeah. <laughs> um, they teach you they a give lot you of a perspective. Yeah, it's it's hard to get this perspective out of textbooks. I think yeah. you have to do the yards in reality. That's yes. those are the words I'm sort of stumbling around. Yeah. But um, with these types of lessons, uh, we have put in place particular aspects of the process. The one is every single position in our portfolio has an exit valuation. So we have a terminal valuation. Uh, and as something gets closer to a terminal valuation, that's not time to change your valuation. It's actually time to start acting on your portfolio decision. Right. Whereas in the absence of that, you know, when a share price uh, uh, leaps up, people say, oh, well, hang on, you know, this company must be worth more. Let me change my valuation. So uh, that's sort of one of the disciplines that we've learned over time. The, the second, and thankfully this was in place with Metarex, was uh, when a business starts to uh, run up, we were revising our valuations because the copper price was changing. So the facts were changing. The business certainly was worth a lot more. And as it was running up, we were exiting some of the capital. So we sold a lot uh, on the way up, uh, and that meant we banked some of the profits. So it wasn't two up to 50, then lose everything all the way back to two. We certainly had uh, some benefit to show for the experience. But, right. um, uh, you know, I think the point about valuation and process uh, shouldn't be lost. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, we've spoken about worst investments, and you've given us some examples there. Now, and the point you made very well is obviously that it's, it becomes a small portion of a broader portfolio. So, you know, it's mm -hmm. not, not the end of the world. If you, if you lose a 2 or a 3% of the portfolio, you can recover. But when it comes to best investments, this is also something I want to ask you about. Because, of course, you know, if you can multiply a, a share and ride a stock up, when it goes up several hundred or several thousands of percent, well, then, of course, your your 3% exposure can become very, very significant. So can you tell us about some of your best investments over the years? Some of the best investments have sat in places, uh, you know, that I described earlier of that overlooked, unloved, unknown territory. And uh, they would... The, the names probably would not... Uh, be well known to many uh, uh, listeners in this audience. They include companies like um, uh, One Logics, uh, a, tr uh, a logistics business, as the name suggests, yep. which um, uh, in the late 1990s, early noughties, was trading at 10 cents a share. Uh, the business had been abandoned uh, by its capital backers and uh, one of the principals uh, in the company, uh, Ian Lawrence, uh, who is the founder of a South African business called Postnet, um, had injected Postnet as the operating business into One Logics. And over the next uh, uh, 10 years, the share price moved from uh, 10 cents to uh, 3 Rand 50. So we made 35 times capital. Mm. Um, uh, uh, a similar but different example um, is a company called Conduit Capital, which was 
at the time of our investment run by Jason Druin. Um, and what drew us to uh, Conduit Capital uh, under Jason's uh, management was that it was a Ben Graham net net. It had more cash on its balance sheet than market cap. Tiny, tiny business. No one was uh, looking at it. Um, and it had a market cap of 200 million with 300 million rand uh, cash and listed assets on the balance sheet. On top of that 300 million, it owned an insurance business that was profitable and dividend paying. So we invested uh, in uh, into Conduit Capital. We bought as much as 15% of the business. Um, we bought as much as we could. And uh, the share price moved from 50 cents over the next uh, five years up to uh, about three rand a share. So we made six times capital. And that's ignoring or excluding the dividend where we received back all of our initial capital in dividend. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a number of those types of examples uh, that for me, you know, really stand out. My, my favorite example, my most powerful uh, example is a company called uh, Sabvest, uh, historically and now Sabcat, um, uh, run by Christopher Seabrook. And perhaps the thing that resonates here is it's the owner-manager type um, uh, 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 investment that really sort of uh, speaks to me as having the capacity to sustain and compound. And... Chris Seabrook listed uh, uh, SA Bias on the JSE in the late 1980s, I think 1987 or 8, uh, speak under correction. And over the 30 years to now, um, the company has generated a return on equity of 23% per annum. Uh, it's an extraordinary compounder. Um, and uh, owning that business over uh, the 30 years, and I haven't let go of any stock that I've bought. So, you know, I've broken perhaps my rule number one, but I'm invested you know, alongside him as the principal in this business. Uh, that, to me, those are the types of companies that really stand out as great successes. Yeah, fascinating. That's that's brilliant. Um, now, obviously, we're living in a very uh, fast-changing world, not always for the better right now with COVID and um, and the pandemic and what have you. It's, it's forced us all to change the way we work and to be more innovative. And at the same time, as much as it's making life difficult, it is also throwing up quite a few interesting opportunities from an investment perspective, I think. Um, it, certainly a lot of tech companies offshore that have that, that, that have suddenly you know come into focus that maybe were there already, but they're certainly a whole lot more relevant than what they were before. Are you seeing or doing anything different uh, and have you changed your approach at all as a result of this covid and uh, and and are you seeing any new investment themes going forward that perhaps weren't there before? If I, if I go back to your early uh, question or initial question, you know, how would I describe myself as an investor? And, you know, my response was uh, it's about getting asset allocation right. And if we've done that, then we've built portfolios that are equipped uh, to cope with COVID. You know, I'll only know that or we'll only know that as a team when we look back uh, in, you know, a year, three, five years time, whenever COVID is truly in the rearview mirror. 
but I think our strategic asset allocation has uh, held up really well uh, through through this period. Um, we, we, we've held the line in terms of our SAA, and inside of our SAA, we have uh, permanently had exposure to um, 5% uh, of the portfolios in physical gold. So, you know, in many times people would say, you know, what the hell are you doing with that physical gold? You know, that's sort of for lunatics and crazies. Um, but uh, it's in this environment where, you know, that type of insurance or protection really comes into its own. And that component of our portfolio has proved to be uh, a valuable component. So it's maybe I'm you know avoiding your question. Is there anything that we've done differently through this? Uh, no, we didn't trade furiously. We we held our line. We held the SAA. I mean, we monitor actively. We're constantly uh, looking and assessing uh, aspects of the portfolio to to satisfy ourselves that the positions are sensible. Um, and if something runs ahead, uh, we'll bank some profit. As it uh, happens in our equity portfolios, we happen to own a particularly profitable South African gold miner called Pan-African Resources. Mm. And you know, going back to my earlier point about taking some money off the table when you recognize or realize valuation, uh, in our active equity portfolios, we've realized a little bit of capital out of Pan-African Resources. So. Uh, no, it's about uh, uh, making sure that our SAA and TAA are sensible to the environment, that the individual names that make up portfolios uh, have business models and balance sheets that still work, um, and then applying the process. So I don't want to say, no, there's nothing we can learn, uh, learn um, uh, but by and large, our process uh, and, and approach uh, are look the same today as they did in January yeah. or similar. Okay. Yeah. Consistency. Good. Yeah. yeah. And now as we draw towards the end of the interview, Adrian, if you, if a youngster came to you now, let's say you're now Adrian Saville again, you're 13 or 14 years old, you're at school and you, you've now got this interest in the market like you did. Say a youngster comes to you and says, I'm interested in the stock market. Or I'm interested in investing. What advice can you give me that'll you know help to put me on the right footing in my career what two or three bits of advice would you give to some youngster today that's a cool question goth um i'm uh, uh, not quite a 13 year old but um my my nephew has developed uh, exactly the fascination that you're describing um uh, and he's uh, in his early 20s so maybe you know, I could use him as my uh, as my example, and um, uh, what I've tried to um, uh, encourage him to do uh, is to read widely. So I've shared a substantial uh, investment library with him. That uh, Charlie Munger says, "Look, we got all this way without speaking about Buffett or Munger." Um, yeah. <laughs> But Charlie Munger says some of the most valuable uh, investment and business, business principles are in a $10 history book. I could not agree more. Um, we keep thinking that you know, somehow this time is different or this is unique. Um, anyone who says that hasn't studied history. Um, 
So and that would be my first urging or guidance to uh, a youngster is read, 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 study history. It is fascinating. It is a valuable guide. Um, the second is learn and understand yourself because uh, you are going to be your greatest ally and your worst enemy. So spend time with this philosophy, psychology, behavior uh, of investing. So understand uh, what you think uh, makes for a successful investment and how you would identify it, how you would own it. If you are a short-term or a long-term investor, if you are an over, you know, if you're a trader, and overnight seems like the long term. So really understand yourself, and then third, please, please, please do not squander. Garth, you mentioned it. The most valuable ingredient that you have is time. So uh, don't, uh, if you can, if you can afford a car uh, for ten, try and buy one for eight. If you're looking at a house worth eleven, try and buy one for nine. Um, and it's not about, you know, living lean and mean uh, and denying yourself the luxuries of life, but just small uh, allocations very early on. Give them 50 years of compounding at 20%. Boy, you get powerful results at the end. Yeah, absolutely. Such wise words there. Such wise words. And a final question, Adrian. Um, soft issue. <laughs> the last <laughs> time I, I saw you, physically saw you uh, in the flesh, yeah. was actually uh, after a <laughs> Counting Crows concert. At, yeah, at, one, uh, one of us remembers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know that when I raised that before the recording, you said you must have been in the fog somewhere, and there was a lot of fog in that concert. <laughs> so that was the last time we saw each other, a Counting Crows concert in Johannesburg. Um, you mentioned also that you were at some point in your life a mobile disco jockey, so you've obviously got yeah, an yeah. music. Um, anything, anything capturing your attention i mean there's not much music concerts happening right now unfortunately mm. um I, this friday coming up i'm actually we've enrolled to attend a johnny clegg tribute concert which i'm really looking forward to oh, nice. but um nice. you know just as an aside from all the hard topics of markets and investments anything interesting on the music front that's capturing your interest at the moment um, I mean, music is my companion and soulmate while I work. So, uh, you know, I'm going to listen to almost anything. Um, I find it uh, engaging, distracting, inspiring. It feeds you. Um, I mean, there's nothing uh, single or particular just before we came on uh, to, uh, to this call. In fact, <laughs> I said to you, I need to stop the music uh, just before we, <laughs> we came on to this call. Yeah, uh, I was listening to uh, some uh, Martin Garrix, uh, uh, Chainsmokers, uh, and uh, Dua Lipa. Uh, that's what was on the playlist. Fantastic. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> All right, Adrian. Well, it's really been super speaking to you again and catching up after these years. Um, thanks very Likewise, much for your time. It's been 40 minutes very well spent for me, so appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to catching up again sometime again in the future. Brilliant to be with you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Talking with Traders, brought to you by IG, a world-leading CFD provider. We really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series. Please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there. And a reminder to make sure you subscribe to the series by clicking the subscribe button on your favorite app. Till next time.